Coming to you from the Morningstar Mission sponsored studio, this is Carl and Crew Mornings. Helping you take your next step with Jesus. That's what we're all about here, Allie. Do you, have you ever counted your steps? Have you ever worn a, some sort of a tracker? It's funny that you say, oh, steps. I thought you were meaning steps with Jesus. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I have. Do you still have your step tracker? Oh, I do. And uh, my daughter wears one too, so she's always uh, trying to compete with me. That's great. Which is never even a competition. Just, Mom, how, how are your steps doing? Oh, I'm somewhere around uh, 3,400. I have 11,000. <laughs> it's always way more. So well, mom doesn't take nearly as many steps in a day as my active 13-year-old. All we need you to take today is one giant step. Just one. And we've got some content that will help you do that. Boom Crew, celebrate what God is doing in you. This is Carl and Crew Mornings. Boy, we got a special guest with us. His name is Dr. David Nelms. He's the founder and president of the Timothy Initiative, which started in 2007 as a church planting training program. He received a Master's of Arts here at Moody Bible Institute. So he's an alum. He's an alum. Good to have you with us, David. Carl, I am so excited to be back on the Moody campus. I love this place. Yeah, I know you do. And God is using you, my friend. Uh, before we even, we just gave the quick overview of your what you do, but really what you do is your church planting. What is God doing through the Timothy Initiative? Give some of those big numbers that are just mind-blowing. Yeah, well, there are movements taking place all over the world. Do you remember experiencing God? Yes, Blackaby. Uh, yeah, he told us, find out where God's moving, blessing. And, and join them. Join them. Instead of asking God to bless what we're doing. Yeah. And that's all we did. We just kind of stumbled on what God was doing. Really? There are these movements taking place around the world. And a movement, the, to be a, the definition of a movement is 100 churches wide, four deep. In other words, churches that start churches that start churches that start churches. Okay. At least 100 of them, all led by indigenous local people. And it's done in a relatively short period of time, two, three, four years there's about 1,300 of those movements being tracked around the world right now. Most of them are in Asia, Africa, some Latin America. I think one in all of North America, one. Oh so it's, but it's happening all over the world, and we get to be a part of that. Okay, really quick here. How many churches are you wanting to plant in the next year with the Timothy Initiative, and you say it's within reach? Uh, at least 30,000. Does that shock you, Allie? Yes. Yes, it does. Okay, how does this how does this happen? I mean, what's the take us back to 2007 when you had the vision for this? Yeah. What's what's the kind of that baseline that gets this going and keeps it going? Well, Allie, first I'd say if it didn't shock us, we ought to, there's something wrong with us. Okay. Either that or we're lying. Okay. It right. would have shocked me 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Okay. But you know, the when you look at the scriptures, when you look the book of Acts is my favorite book in the mm -hmm. Bible. And I don't I used to see making disciples there. I now see making disciple makers. I see it on every page. And and there's all the difference in the world. Yeah, explain that difference. The well, difference between a dis, uh, a disciple and a disciple maker. Yeah, well, when you make disciples, you grow by addition. When you make disciple makers, you grow by multiplication. Okay, great. And multiplication always trumps addition. Okay, it takes a little time to get going. You've heard the old illustration: add a dollar a day for thirty days, you get thirty dollars. Multiply, double a dollar a day for thirty days, it's in the millions. 
Mm-hmm. However, it takes a few days for it to get going. Right. So it's a little slow on the front end, which is one reason why it doesn't hasn't caught on in the United States, because we want everything yesterday. Okay, and that probably works to our disadvantage. Yeah. David, uh, answer this one because we've been wrestling with it. Give us your best shot at this. What is a disciple? If we're called to, and I'm, I'm intrigued with this because we're measuring nickels and noses in America, and that's okay, but the higher ground is to measure disciple-making. What is a disciple, and how do we know if they're becoming one? I'll tell you what our definition is, what okay. we go by. We would say a disciple is someone who lives like Jesus and leads others to do the same. Whew. Now, let me, I lo- I love let, that. me, let me break that down. Living like Jesus would be the great commandment. Love God, love people. Jesus loved his Father. He loved people. Yes. We would say if you love God and you love people, that kind of takes care of just about everything. But we add in that the great commission part. So it's the great commandment and the great commission because Jesus said, if you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And I was listening to the, uh, the, your broadcast a little earlier today and uh, going through that list of what the pastor said, I don't think evangelism was on there. If it was, I didn't catch it. It wasn't. It was not. And, and usually when you look at discipleship and I don't even like that word, but when you look at discipleship, material in the United States, if there's 10 lessons, evangelism is going to be lesson number eight or nine or maybe lesson number 10. Where do you put it? We put it at the very beginning. (laughs) Jesus said, follow me, I will make you fishers of Of men. Immediately he said that. Andrew first found his own brother, Peter. The woman at the well hadn't even kicked the guy out yet she was living with. And she's reaching the whole town. The demoniac of Gadara 10 minutes earlier, he's naked, full of demons. And now Jesus says, go home and tell your friends what I've done for you. I got chills right now. Uh, Lydia, the jailer, his whole family gets baptized before, before the sun comes up. And so uh, we, we would say, when does a candle give off light? The candle doesn't have to say, I got to go through six months of uh, light bearing training. The can- you light the candle, it gives off light. We've got God inside of us. We should be, it ought to be obvious. But so we, we would say it's living like Jesus and leading others to do the same. And that would be what we, how we would define it. Dr. David Nelms, our guest right now, he serves as founder and president of TTI. That's the Timothy Initiative. We are going to have a link here, guys, because not only are you going to want to take a look at how they're doing it, you might want to even fund what they're doing. And I'll tell you why. As we look at what's going on in Afghanistan, David, and we see what's going on around the world, a decentralized, underground, spiritual movement as opposed to a, having been a megachurch pastor, I'm not totally against them. I actually think there's a lot of validity to getting large groups together. But it seems to me if we're going to reach this world for Jesus, we got to have a smaller, broken down, decentralized approach. Am I blowing smoke? No, that's a book of Acts. I asked myself one day, how did they go from one church in Jerusalem, Acts 2, to Rome, Italy, Acts 28, which was the capital city of the ends of the earth at that time? And they did it in 30, 35 years. And they didn't have a phone. They didn't have a microphone. They didn't have a radio. They didn't have a Moody. They didn't have a Bible college. They didn't have a Bible yet. The Bible wasn't completed. Oral tradition. Yeah, it was oral tradition and and it was grassroots. It was Paul training Timothy, who trained faithful people, who trained others also. Which is 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Yeah. Unbelievable. 
uh, coming up with more with Dr. David Nelms. I want to ask him about this three-phase process. So if the goal here is to make disciples who make disciples, what's the three-phase process they use to make that possible? Got to get it. That's coming up straight ahead. Don't miss out on all the fun. Keep up with Carl and Crew mornings on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget, that's Carl with a K. We have Dr. David Nelms with us, founder and president of the Timothy Initiative. It's a church planning ministry. Okay, so there's this three-phase process to making disciples who make disciples. Initiate, establish, expand. What does that mean? Yeah, well... Basically, it's a what we do is we 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 focus on the local church. I believe the local church is the front lines. We train Pauls who are pastors who in turn recruit members of their churches that we call Timothys. We train the Pauls. When I say we, national leaders, indigenous people train the Pauls who in turn train the Timothys. The Timothys in turn go out and lead people to Christ, mm-hmm. and they begin discipling those people. So the Timothy has his own Timothy or her own Timothy. Yeah. And we just call that next generation Titus so we know who it is. Yeah. So it's three trainings going on at the same time. It's an old school apprenticeship, iron on iron, highly relational process. It's Paul taking Timothy under his wing and saying, go with me in Asia Minor for, I don't know, a couple of years, short-term trip. By the time Timothy gets back, Paul has rubbed off on Timothy. Timothy has become Paul. That's why he can now do the same thing with others. And we added a curriculum in there because we do believe there needs to be depth. Uh, There needs to be a solid foundation. It seems to me, David, that a lot of the successful areas around the world where this is happening seems to be running parallel to some pretty stiff persecution. Mm -hmm. Is it almost requisite? To have a level of persecution, to have abundance spiritually? Is that our problem stateside here? Well, that's one of our problems. We have a few. Uh, it's a persecution will certainly separate the, if I can say, yes, the men it from will. the boys. Yep. Uh, but, you know, we, we're getting killed here in the United States. Why? Well, there are several reasons. Uh, but one major reason, and and I, I don't want to come across as criticizing the church. The church is the bride of Jesus. Yes. And you got to be careful what you say about a guy's wife. Abs. Okay. You know what? That's well <laughs> uh, put, but it was, it was hit pretty hard in the book of Revelation at times. Well, it was. It was. But uh, I think a major problem, maybe not the, but a major problem is we've been focusing on making disciples and not on making disciple makers, which means there is, there's little growth. Hold it. Hold it. So you're saying... We're stopping short. We should go bigger. Rather, we're playing small ball. We should play big ball. Yeah, we we base the great. We say the great commission is making disciples based on Matthew twenty eight nineteen, but we don't read the next verse, which says, "Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you." Them as the new believer. Well, he just commanded them to make disciples. The previous verse. So the Great Commission is more than making disciples. It's making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Okay, I got so many questions. How do you keep that? Because uh, temperature in the room is an important thing. And we've often heard it said, you better be white hot for Jesus if you want these blue hot for Jesus and then these yellow hot for Jesus. How have you seen the Holy... I know it's the Holy Spirit's work, but how do we... Uh, make a way that the Holy Spirit keeps this whole process white hot. How do how do we keep it from just falling off the cliff two two people away? Well, we 
the Holy Spirit is key, okay? And, Central. And, yes. Uh, in our training, the very first lesson of the very first book is how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, see, that's huge. Okay? Yeah. The very first lesson of the very first book. Jesus, his very last words, last words, important, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Couldn't agree. And then he said this, and you will be my, not small group members or church attenders or he said, and you will be my witnesses. Jesus directly co- connected witnessing to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, it happened. Peter went from a shriveling violet to a bold lion of a man Yeah, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Carl, the stat is, this is from the Billy Graham Association, 95% of born-again American Christians will go to their grave without ever having led a single person to Jesus Christ. It's heartbreaking. And that is, the, see, disciple-making begins with evangelism. You can't grow into Christ-likeness until you've been born into his family. Whew. It begins with evangelism, and we're not— ev- the best, best case is people are inviting their friends to church to hear the pastor give the gospel. The pastor is supposed to be equipping those people to go out where they Boom. live, work, Boom. study, shop, and play. Boom and lead people to Christ. <gasps> and then that person should disciple the new believer themselves. Wow. Now, this work is happening in areas of the world where there's few Bibles. There's not a lot of church buildings. So you don't emphasize that church building structure. These are churches that are meeting on mountaintops and hillsides. Yeah, we were, we're planting churches among 900 different UPGs, unreached people groups. Mm-hmm. And some of these places, it's illegal. If you build a building, they're going to blow it up or burn it down. So we meet in a cave, on a rooftop, in an alley, somebody's house, under a tree, wherever we can find to meet. In many cases, they don't have Bibles. In many cases, they've never seen a Bible. They don't know what it is. Amazing. And, and this is what's heartbreaking to me. They're not rejecting Jesus. They don't know who he is. And they don't know who he is because nobody's ever told them. And the last thing Jesus said Ends of the earth. Last Go. words of us about ends of the earth. It's been 2,000 years. We need to up the game a little bit. There's so many questions I have. Lord, help me get the right one here. The person listening right now, we're going to give you a link here in just a moment because I, I'm telling you right now, some of the greatest spiritual leaders in this city brought this man in, David Nelms, to say, ask him, how are we going to get this going? And, and some of them say, how are we going to fund your efforts? We'll give you a link in a moment. But w- how shall we then live? What do you say to us right now, David? Well, we've, we've got to get back to, to the, the scriptures, the New Testament. I, I would challenge your listeners, Carl, go back and read the book of Acts again very slowly. Take off your cultural lenses. Don't interpret the book of Acts through what you've understood church to be, but just read it yeah. for what it says. And then our church planting book is the book of Acts. We tell our, we tell our people, <laughs> the book. read the book of Acts and don't tweak anything. Don't tweak it. Just do exactly what it says. The Bible is the only cross-cultural book ever written. It will work everywhere. David Nelms, and uh, guys, there's so much more where this comes from. How do they find this? Well, it's called the Timothy Initiative, so just text the word TIM. We made it easier for you. Just text TIM, T-I-M, to 312 274 
9624. This will get to you to the website. You can learn a little bit more about the ministry, how you can be a supporter. Just text Tim to 312-274-9624. David Nelms, I need, I need you to know something, brother. I love you. We have just begun a friendship. We're going to keep this going. I can assure you right now, as long as there's breath in my lungs and I'm on this show, you are going to be in here. You're on the frequent flyer club. You don't have a chance, a choice. <laughs> hey, I love Chicago. It's my favorite city. Yeah, well, you're going to keep coming back, David. Amen. We love you and thank you. Thank you, Carl. Get more from your morning show. Check us out on social media. Just search Carl and Crew Mornings on Facebook and Instagram. Well, what a treat we have this morning. Dr. Tony Evans joining us, one of the country's most respected leaders in evangelical circles. He's a pastor, best-selling author, frequent speaker at Bible conferences and seminars throughout the nation. You can find his website, TonyEvans.org. Well, Dr. Evans, it appears that our inability to stand in unity undermines his deity. Speak to that for a moment, why this is such an important thing that we come together. Well, Jesus wanted uh, us to be one as he and his Father are one. The Trinity is one in essence, but distinct in personhood. There's unity of nature, but there is not uniformity of persons. They have distinct functions. The key to understanding why this is important is that God distances himself from illegitimate disunity. He involves himself in legitimate unity. This is on every level. Um, God won't even hear a prayer of a husband who's disunified yes, with his wife. That's right. First Peter 3, 7. In First Corinthians 7, 5, he tells them to be in agreement if they want to contact heaven. So that's why the Holy Spirit tells, well, we're told in Ephesians 4, 3, to preserve the unity of the Spirit. So it's a spiritual issue. When Satan is able to disrupt our unity, he can keep God at bay because he knows God can't function outside of his own being. So Satan has a better knowledge of God than we do, so he creates disunity that's illegitimate, race, culture, class, politics, personality, you name it, in order that prayers will be hindered. And so you can have all the prayers and joint worship services you want. If there's not legitimate unity, you won't see God intervening into our circumstances. Oh, Dr. Tony Evans with us this morning. What a treat. Okay, I'm going to throw out some words here, some terms that are going to make some people uncomfortable, but you tackle them in your book, so I think it's safe. Systemic racism, critical race theory, white privilege. Those terms, and I'm just going to go with those three for now, those are terms that if you were to speak those in most circles, you're going to get a lot of people tensing up. You're going to get a lot of different opinions. You're going to get some people who are going to leave the room and not really want to go there at all. But you have this book, Kingdom Race Theology, God's Answer to Our Racial Crisis. Let's start with systemic racism. Tackle that one first. Uh, First, define it and tell us what we are as a church to do with it. Well, systemic racism goes beyond just individual persons to how structures have been affected uh, by uh, historical systems of racism. Let me give you an illustration. Our church just purchased the golf course that's adjacent to our church. Blacks were not allowed on on the golf course for many years. And the way they did that was if an African-American was recommended, you had to get two-thirds of the vote in order to be allowed. So the reason no African-American could ever be there is they could never get two-thirds of the vote. So it wasn't written that African-Americans can't play, but they had a structure in place that didn't allow uh, African-Americans to play until just a few years ago. 
So that would be an illustration of a system at work that was structured in a way that did not give equal access and equal opportunity. So systemic racism is the structural application of racial disparity that the person who may have invited me to the golf course may not have been a racist, but the structure did not allow equal access. And so that is what we mean by systemic racism. What do we do about it? Well, we must obviously address any racism that is discriminatory, prejudicial actions based on skin color. We must address that personally. But when we see it operating in a structure, even though we are not in agreement with it, we must speak out against it Mm -hmm. and seek to correct it. Boom. Love that. Okay. Number two, critical race theory. What say you, Dr. Evans? Well, critical race theory is basically, it's it's an academic explanation, really, for systemic racism. What it says is that racist laws were established in the past, and those racist laws embedded themselves into all the major systems of American life. So that even when those laws were changed, they have been so embedded that the repercussions of them continue to exist. And what they appeal to is what they call story or what they call the lived experiences of minorities, which are different than the lived experiences of Anglos, which create some of the disparity in understanding. But if people would understand those stories, then they would understand why African-Americans and other minorities look at things different than they do because we have a different history than the broader white community. Now, the problem is that critical race theory, while it does offer some good historical understanding, does not provide sufficient answers to correct the things that they are observing. Mm -hmm. But it it fundamentally focuses on law and its effect. But it's become a little bit of everything now because it's gotten all meshed (laughs) with, with, with all the racial sensitivities operating in the culture. Yeah, some good not some not so good when we come back here really quickly my question has been and we'll get to white privilege in a moment Ali I'll ask you that question but I want you to drill down a little bit deeper my am I wrong my supposition is we don't hear each other's story enough we have theological discussions we have bible studies but do we get below the surface and share our heart and what we feel that question with Dr. Evans coming up Giving hope directly from the source. We're Carl and Crew Mornings. We have Dr. Tony Evans with us this morning. He's best-selling author, pastor, uh, speaker all over the place. This is Dr. Evans. You know who he is. Yep, he's with us right now. Okay, Doc, I laid it out here for you. Could one of the big assists in unity in the body of Christ, and I'm talking every nation, tribe, tongue, be that we sit down and one story at a time start listening to each other, or is that too simplistic? Well, I think it is it is necessary, but it is insufficient on its own. Okay. Because we could be sitting down talking about stories for, from here to eternity. And nothing and changes. And not, still not solve the problem. I think reconciliation, while it should include an understanding of where we're coming from, our different histories and backgrounds, is really going to be accomplished through service. When we come together to serve somebody else who is worse off than we are, We will find our unity in our ministry, not merely in our mouths, and that is in our conversations. 
Let's get to know each other while we serve together. And that is how reconciliation, mm. biblical reconciliation, is achieved. Jesus, God didn't just talk about reconciliation. There was a cross involved. And when we understand the actions of reconciliation and not merely the discussions about reconciliation, you know, when you're in a war, you don't care about the color, class, or culture of the man fighting next to you as long as he's shooting in the same direction Yeah, that's right. Are. Common and enemy so is powerful bond. So when, when all this stuff is hitting us from the culture now, there's a ministry to work at. Let's just get to know each other while we do that ministry together. Oh, love it. Dr. Tony Evans with us right now. Got to tackle one more kind of loaded term, white privilege, uh, and allow you to kind of give us a biblical perspective on how we interpret that. What do we make of this term, its usage, uh, and how we as the church address it? Well, white privilege means that skin color was never a detriment to Anglos in the culture, whereas for black people, skin color alone was sufficient for discrimination and for inequities. So there are benefits that accrued to Anglos that did not equally accrue to non-Anglos strictly based on skin color, and those are called the privileges that have beneficial. I mean, there were schools I couldn't go to. I couldn't even go to Dallas Seminary if I would have applied three or four years earlier oh, because word. of my skin color. That almost so, is hard to believe, but it was really happening, wasn't it, Doc? Absolutely. I was told by, uh, and I, I will always praise Moody because it was the first network that allowed us on, but I was told by radio stations a black speaker would offend too many of our white listeners. So that was a privilege granted white speakers that was not granted me initially until Moody opened up its doors. So those are privileges, and I know it has it's a loaded term because it just gets thrown out there for everything, and that's unfortunate, but that doesn't make it all wrong. There have been historical benefits accrued to whites because skin color was never something that hindered the ability to be a full participant, not only in American life, but even in the Christian church. One last one. Andrew Murray says in his book, Humility, one of my top five favorites ever, he says, humility is the one virtue that gives birth to every other virtue. Pastor Evans, is he right? And if so, why don't you riff on that for a minute? I definitely agree with that, because when you think too highly of yourself, when, you don't, when you're not small in your own eyes, then you're going to let somebody else define you. And right now, color is defining us, culture is defining us, class is defining us, and not our identity in Christ. And when we understand that our identity in Christ should make us foot washers, should, uh, you know, he, he left heaven and came to earth and became a doulos, Philippians 2 says, yeah. as a slave. When we understand the nature of Jesus and function that way in our relationships with one another and our witness before the world, that humility will give us the kind of virtue and the kind of witness that one people will see Christ is real, and number two, the glory of God will be manifested. Mm. I have to believe, Dr. Tony Evans, that's why you wrote this book, Kingdom Race Theology. Give you the last word. What do you want people to take away from it? While I want to review the pain of our past, I want to talk about what the kingdom says about our future. So Kingdom Race Theology is designed to give us a windshield so we don't live in the rearview mirror of racial disparity and inequities, but that we work together to produce a new future based on the central theme of the Bible, which is the kingdom of God. You walk the high ridge so with such theological precision and class. Dr. Evans, thank you. Well, thank you, and we love we love you, and we appreciate all you're doing for the kingdom. It's amazing to have you with us today. His name, Tony Evans. Yep. The name of the book, Kingdom Race Theology. Come on, guys, grab a copy. No energy? No problem. We have all the energy you need and more. You're listening to Carl and Crew Mornings. 
We've got a special guest jumping in with us today. Let me give him an introduction. Dr. Eric Redmond, professor of Bible here at Moody Bible Institute, also serves as associate pastor of preaching, teaching at care and care at Calvary Memorial Church in Oak Park. Well, it's been a while since you've been in here, doctor. It's good to have you with us. It's good to be back on this show. Thank you guys for having me again. Yeah. Okay. Authorship. We look at the Bible and you go, my goodness, 40 different authors. What, what does that matter? What's that got to do with anything, doctor? One of the things it shows is that the Bible was not a construction of just a little group getting together and saying, oh, we want to make up some writings to support the religion that we have. But we have authors that are selected from all over. Some of them were farmers. Some of them were fish fishermen. Some of them lived in king's palaces. Some of them had superior intellects or were med- medical doctors. And so we, we see that there was not a group that was, yes. was doing it especially. But also God used the unique gifts and abilities of all the the people that that were there. And you can see their influences, their individualities as they contribute to the writings that we have in scripture. Okay. This is huge. A quick aside here. This, this is where the Bible gets set apart from the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita, because in those manuscripts of Islam and Hinduism alone, which now encompasses what two thirds of the world or close to it, a big mm-hmm. chunk mm-hmm. that was made up of a small gathering of people. That's a huge distinction that I hadn't thought of before, Doctor. Having this variety of authorship actually lends credibility to the Bible. It does, because if you think about Islam, where Muslims would believe that it came, the Quran came from divine inspiration, all of it, to to the prophet uh, Muhammad. And there's one one person who has exactly what God said. That's not what we're saying with Scripture. We're saying that God used many people along the history of of redemption and the history of making both the Hebrew Bible and and the New Testament. And God uniquely worked through each one of those persons rather than saying all the authority, all the understanding, all the ways that we know God came through one person. Mm. So, uh, Dr. Redmond, Carl just wrote a book. He is an author. And so when someone writes a book now, they may put on Facebook. It's now on moodypublishers.com. How do we know when it comes to the Bible that when we pick up this book that's a collection of different authors, how do we actually know that these individuals wrote these individual books? So we have many ways that we ascertain who uh, the authors are. For example, let me go to the New Testament first. When we look at writings outside the New Testament, we have early writings uh, dating back to the end of the first century or to the beginning of the second century. And in one of them, there's Papias, who's the Bishop of Hierapolis. He writes between 95 and 110 AD that in talking with the Apostle John, John said that Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, followed Peter around and listened to Peter's uh, sermons and accurately wrote down what Peter said. Now, this is a source outside of the Bible. Bible. It's a historic source that points to an author in um, the scriptures. So you have in the New Testament, which would be a different writing than the Hebrew mm-hmm. Bible, we refer to the Hebrew Bible to be respectful to Jews. So there are many Jewish people who would not recognize the New Testament as inspired. You have writers in the New Testament who say in the Psalms, David wrote, 
Isaiah wrote, referring to Isaiah the prophet. Yeah. Jeremiah wrote. So we have source a source for the authors of the Hebrew writers to say Moses wrote, and they were accepting this in the first century. Then you have all the writings uh, that lead up to the time of the New Testament that refer to the different Old Testament writers say, we know that in the law, Moses wrote this. We know according to Jeremiah that there were 70 years for the time of the captivity. So we have both external and internal sources that point to the identity of, of, of writers. And we have outside sources in both the ancient, the ancient Near Eastern world and in the Greek world that point us to these authors. Awesome. Dr. Eric Remden is his name. And man, this is great. I'm going to school here. Coming up here. Listen, uh, we've got four different gospel accounts. Mm -hmm. We got the synoptics and we got the gospel of John. And the thing that intrigues me is some people say, yeah, you read those Gospels and they're different from one another. I want to hear what you have to say, doctor. Coming mm -hmm. up straight ahead. Talking about Jesus and having fun while doing it. We're Carl and Crew Mornings. We have Dr. Eric Redman with us right now, professor of Bible at Moody Bible Institute, as we are talking about authorship. So there's a lot of questions with authorship, doctor. Uh, thank you for being with us today, by the way. Love you taking time to be in with us. This is great. When we look at the Gospels, some people look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they go, well, we got four different authors. And if you listen to the accounts, they're, they're kind of disparate at times. Are they? What do you say, doctor, to four different Gospel accounts? I mean, this is huge. This is about the Messiah. This is about the King of the world. What do you say about the four different authors? Let me start by focusing on the three Gospels that are similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we call the synoptic Gospels because they seem to be written from the same viewpoints. Now, when you read something going on in Matthew that's also in Mark or something in Mark that's also in Luke, sometimes the wording won't be exactly alike. Sometimes the order will be different. Sometimes it's in a different placing inside the book. And people will say, see, that shows that there was not inspired because their accounts are not the same. But actually, by them having various accounts and not the exact wording, it lends itself better to the idea that these are original. Because if we wanted to fabricate, we would copy exactly. Oh, that's a good point. We would have the exact same thing in the accounts. And so by having different writers that have different perspectives, sometimes the accounts are longer in some places. Sometimes they're, they're, they're shorter. Things are, are slightly different with omissions in there. That's pointing to they did not collaborate to scheme yeah. and say, we're going to make this look exactly alike. So people will definitely say, oh, this is from God. No, yeah. the variation is what shows. And then you have John, which is completely different than the other guys. Different intent and purpose. But they all show Jesus is the divine son of God. He is the promised Messiah, the, 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 the Christ. They have a pattern that begins with John the Baptist and that ends with the empty tomb. They have similar ideas that show up in things like all of them having the feeding of the five, 5,000 or all of them having miracle stories in there. So they lend themselves to showing that they are true by being different rather than being similar and showing that we need to be suspicious of that. Dr. Redmond, so there's somebody listening who this sounds pretty academic, maybe interesting stuff, maybe for a Moody professor or a Moody student. Why should the Bible reader who doesn't go to Bible school, doesn't want to become a pastor, care about who wrote individual books? You should care about who wrote individual books because the authorship 
influences the, the, the meaning or the message or contributes to the idea of the book. So Matthew's Jewishness contributes to yes. Matthew's Jewish accounting. Mm, the yeah. fact that Mark uh, is Roman contributes to the way Mark writes with his Latinisms and he translates, translates the Aramaic terms so that somebody who's not Jewish can understand. Certainly John's background in Judaism hugely influences what's going on in his account. Or Paul, because Paul has this steep background in Judaism. We have more Old Testament quotations in the book of Romans to argue that Romans is a continuation of what we have from the Old Testament. But Paul, his personality is contributing that because of his background as a Pharisee who knew more than anybody else, this this chief student of Judaism. So Authorship is not something we just skip over, especially if we're also saying that we believe these were real people who walked with Jesus. I love that. Mm, wow. I got to go back. I've got so many questions. I got to pick one here to wrap us up. <laughs> um, I might do two. No, I'll do one. All right. <laughs> Gospel of John. John said, I wrote these things that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's why he wrote the gospel. Mm-hmm. What's it say about the other gospels? So John gives us his intent in the gospel, but we can pick up what's going on in the other gospels by their content. And what we do for the lay person that's listening, we look at the content and we're able to reconstruct what is going on based on the content. So we can say, you know, Matthew has more Old Testament quotations in his gospels than the other by far. writing. And, and he has a very Jewish flavor to his. It looks like Matthew is trying to write to Jewish people to convince them that Jesus is the Christ. That's why we have the genealogy that's right. up front. That's why we have the Isaiah prophecy about the virgin come on and on and on and on. But we look at something like Luke and we say, boy, Luke has a lot of Facts accounts and with, yeah, and with a lot of accounts with women in here. And he's got some unique oh, parables yeah, in right. here. And a lot of Gentiles get converted in Luke. It looks like Luke is writing for a much broader audience, including a lot of Gentiles. And he's trying to show that Jesus was not just a Jewish Messiah, but he's savior of the whole of the whole world. So John just wants to be specific and tell you, look, I want to tell you why I wrote all this and it looks different from the other three. I want you to believe, but we can reconstruct from the other ones and see they were doing something very similar. Yeah. Matthew wants Jewish people to believe. Luke wants all people to believe. I love that. It's good. This is good stuff. Uh, I'm going to throw it in for free. I'm going to throw in a quick one here. We have time for this? <laughs> okay, 30 Probably seconds. Not. I'll do right. 30 seconds. Uh, in the book of Romans, Paul goes all the way back to the Genesis account to talk about real justification by mm-hmm. faith alone. Mm-hmm. To someone who sees a disconnect between Old and New Testament, what does that do? I mean, is that game set match there, doctor? No, and there's so much Old Testament and New Testament. In fact, most New Testament scholars would agree and say you get a much better understanding of the New Testament if you have a deep understanding of the Old Testament. If you have great familiarity, you don't have to be a scholar, but you need to be familiar. So when you get to a book like Hebrews, you understand the whole discussion on Melchizedek. And when you're in the book of Romans, you're able to see, you know, this is a story of salvation that began back With in Abraham. Genesis. And yes, and they understand. The writers understood it this way. Or when you look at the rest of the New Testament and see how many times they go into Isaiah and the Psalms, they see that they're developing something that God has been doing in history and fulfilling it in their writings. So no, the the Old and New Testament being different is part of the beauty of what we have in our hands of scripture. Dr. Eric Redmond, everybody. Wow. Come on. This is great. Woo. Thanks guys for having me back again. I love this. Whether it's number one or 100, take that step with Jesus today. You're listening to Carl and Crew Mornings.
Well, Boom Crew, you're in for a real treat this morning. We have Cece Winans with us. She is the best-selling, most awarded female gospel artist of all time. She's got a new book out. It's called Believe For It, Passing on Faith to the Next Generation. Cece Winans, so good to have you with us this morning. So honored to be here. Thanks for having me. One of the things I love just looking through your book, when people hear the Winans name and they and they know what's been accomplished, there is this picture of this kind of picture perfect family. Now we know that no family's perfect, but it's easy when you see somebody and you you see what's put forward, it's easy to mm-hmm. think that somehow maybe they don't have the battles that the rest of us have. You mm-hmm. give us a glimpse in this book of some of the backstory that maybe people don't know. Tell us a little bit about uh, about your family that you really wanted to reveal in this book. Well, one of the things that really I found out kind of later on in life, I was in a ministry class, my husband and I, and um, one of my assignments uh, was to go and, you know, get some information on our family tree. We were mm-hmm. talking about family trees. And I went and I interviewed my mom, I interviewed my dad, and I left those interviews saying, oh my God, mm-hmm. just one generation away, you know, because they came together as a 17 and 19 year old when they got married and made the commitment to serve the Lord and to raise their family in the house of God. And, you know, me growing up in that house really kind of would have thought the same thing, Mm -hmm. you know, not that we were perfect by far, but, but when I heard their story, my mom, you know, dreading the weekends because she knew it would be a whole lot of fighting and drinking and someone would be stabbed or mm-hmm. uh, a bottle would be busted over somebody's head. It was just the turmoil that she lived in. I mean, they were both from broken homes. My dad didn't even take the wine his name until later because his dad, he was born to a um, born in wedlock to a single mom. And his dad really denied him to say he wasn't the father at first. Wow. And so he took on his mom's maiden name. So I came back from those interviews with talking about drama. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> but but then I saw the power of the blood of Jesus yes. and, and two kids. I mean, literally kids saying, we're going to, as for me in our house, we're going to serve the Lord. And they raised us in such a way that I was totally shocked, you know, at what they had endured and went through just, you know, just in their lives, just that one generation before us, you know? Um, So it was so encouraging. It just, it just revived me in, in my belief and my faith in the power of, of the living God and the power of committing to love him with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Yeah, no, you grew up in a musical family with nine siblings mm-hmm. and your parents, though they were young, they made that decision early on to serve the, serve the Lord. You probably didn't even realize at the time how special that was. Right. You don't. As a child, you don't realize that you complain or you you think it's just normal. And um, and when you get a little older, you realize, wow, you know, even like you said, nine siblings, 10 kids. My mom, they both worked. My mom cooked, cleaned. Uh, she did everything. Wow. And, and, and 
and they made sure we was in church. They understood the importance of it. So some of us would be on the bus going to church. My older brothers, you know, I would come later with my parents, but they had us in Sunday school. They had us in midweek service. They had us in the choir or in children's church. We were active. And now I realize as an adult, that's a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) It certainly is. That's a lot of work, but that's where that was the importance. That was the priorities that they had in their lives. They understood that this was not negotiable. This was this was not an option. This this is how they had to do it in order to receive or for us to receive the blessings of the Lord. So I am just forever grateful to them. And that's what I'm really trying to I'm trying to stress it both, both in this book, the importance of parents and grandparents understanding that we have so much to give and pouring out to the next generation is a necessity. Um, And then trying to tell the parents that that church shouldn't be an option. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to put that that's more important than your than than your job than anything else. That's got to be most important. And then God will honor you and everything else. And so with this book, I am really trying to stress the importance of passing on the faith, but also the commitment and and the the work. You have to be intentional in order to pass on the faith to the next generation. Now, do you remember, Cece, when your parents' faith became your own, when it was more than just, okay, I'm going to church every Sunday because this is what mom and dad have me doing. I'm going to Sunday school. I'm learning the stories. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when it really became your faith? I I can't remember the day and the time, but I can remember that it was very early on. And this is the beauty. Ooh, I could cry talking Mm. about this. This is the beauty of the Holy Spirit. I fell in love with Jesus early on. Yeah. Um, Ooh, I can say probably about eight, seven or eight, if not. And, and I fell in love with the spirit of God. You know, it was, it was the spirit and, and, and I've heard people say this before, and it's so true. You know, you can come up with a lot of rules and you can have, you know, even what you do, but it's the spirit that captures the heart. Yes. And, and we cannot underestimate the spirit of God capturing the hearts of our children. Mm. I fell in love with the presence of God, you know, wow. and, and so I would love to like go with my grandmother to prayer in the morning. And I couldn't, I couldn't articulate it. But it was a peace. It was a it was a safety. It was protection. It was love. It's just like I I fell in love with that. And so even throughout my teenage years and, you know, preteens, I wanted to be in prayer. I wanted to be at church. I I tell my kids that now they're like, what you want to do? What? (laughs) I was like, yes, I, I loved hearing the word. I love hearing the older saints. Again, that example hearing the older saints discuss the scriptures, you know? Yeah. And so I, I, God captured my heart at a young age and, and I always, even through my mistakes, I always wanted him more than anything else. Wow. Cece Winans, our guest right now coming up. I'm going to ask her a little bit more about this book, believe for it, passing on faith to the next generation. You're listening to her story and there's a sweetness to it. And there's a, you you think I want that for my kid or I want that for my grandkid. I want them to grow Mm -hmm. up in the house of the Lord, not just being there to check a box, but really loving Mm -hmm. being in the presence of God. How do we do that for the next generation? More with our guest Cece Winans coming up. Waking you up with adrenaline and Jesus. We're Carl and Crew Mornings.
We've got Cece Winans with us this morning, a best-selling and most awarded female gospel artist of all time. She's got a book out. It's called Believe For It, the same name as that song that we love here on Moody Radio, the subtitle, Passing on Faith to the Next Generation. Cece, what do you think is the biggest obstacle that prevents faith from being passed down? The biggest obstacle, wow, that's a big question because I think it's several things, but I would just have to say, if we're gonna go for one thing, it would have to be denying our flesh, mm. denying self. The Bible tells us we have to deny our flesh daily. You know, we, it's, it's, it's picking up our cross and understanding that life is not about us. <laughs> sure. We are blessed to inherit and to experience abundant life because of what Jesus did, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I think the biggest obstacle is that we get confused that it's not about us, that it's, it's all about him and his plan, yeah. that this world is not our home, you know, as believers. And if that mind shift doesn't happen and that heart shift doesn't happen, then it prevents us from passing on the faith, the pure faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ on to the next generation. We end up passing on something that's mixed yeah. with something else, you know, and it's the pure faith. And, and, and the only thing that can get in the way of that is, is us. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure you've heard the expression a lot of times when people talk about faith or really anything that it's more caught than taught. Right. <laughs> Have That's you found true. that to be true? You, you so true. Raising your own two children, and mm -hmm. I know you and your husband pastor a church with a lot of millennials. Mm -hmm. What are you? What have you learned? Definitely, the teaching is is most important. But living it, people actually seeing me modeling, my husband and I modeling faith, you know, to our children who are now grown adults. Actually, my son is our lead pastor now. We oh, founded wow. the church. And just a year ago, he became our lead pastor. Oh, so, what a you know, moment for you. Exactly. As a so mom. every Sunday, every Sunday as a mom, I could just lay on the floor and weep, you know, <laughs> oh. uh, because as a mom, that's all I prayed for was that my children would fall in love, with, that they would get it, you know, not, not just try to be church goers by name, but, to, but that they would have a heart conviction and a love for Christ and a love for his people. And both my children love God and they love people. They love making disciples. Mm -hmm. They are not impressed with just, you know, performances. <laughs> right. And I, none of us can really take credit for that. You, you can't take credit because it takes the, the power of the living God is the love of mm -hmm. God. It's his grace and his mercy that have blessed my children to fall in love with Jesus. But I understood that you know, going in as a mom, I, I totally understood, again, because of the generation before me, I understood my responsibility to be the parent and not their best friend, to live a life in front of them that wouldn't bring a reproach on holiness, but they would see me live the same thing I, I'd preached about, mm -hmm. you know, in the home. When in bad times, how do you act during bad times? How do you and dad go through disagreements? How do yeah. you, you know, it's a holy life that you live in front of them. And so they've always seen us live that, you know, even even in our failures and our mistakes, they've heard us say, I'm sorry, yeah. I apologize, you know. Um, and, and so no matter where they went, and that's the beauty, the Bible says, train them up in the way they should go. And when they're old, they won't depart. That doesn't mean they won't make mistakes. <laughs> but but wherever they went, they knew what truth was. Yes. They knew what holiness was. And so that was always my prayer. You know, when they got involved in things that weren't Christ-like, they knew 
you know, I wasn't for it. You know, I, I, I was never quiet about mm -hmm. that. You know, that is not godly. I love you, but that's not godly. So I cannot support you in that. Yeah. And those are tough things that you have to do sometimes because they're not going to like you all the time. And <laughs> and I was more I was more I don't want to say worry, but I, it was more important to me that God was pleased with me, even when my children weren't. Oh, that's good. So what would you say, Cece, to the parent or maybe the grandparent who feels like they've missed it? Maybe they did not have a godly home as they raised their children and they see mm -hmm. or maybe they did and their children still have walked away. What would you say to the parent or the grandparent who's feeling really discouraged because their children are not serving the Lord? Their grandchildren have walked away from the Lord. What do you say to them? Well, let's let's take both of those. If you if you were a believer and you and you realize that you didn't do it to the best of your ability, there's forgiveness. You yeah. know, that, that that's the beauty of the cross. <laughs> yes. God knows even my kids, my both my kids had both their parents. We went to church together. We, we strive to do the right thing. And guess what? Both my kids went through times in their lives where I was like, who are they? <laughs> <laughs> Lord, who are these children? What in the world? I mean, even in the book I share where my son, I found this out later when he was on his way to Australia, he looked up and just told God, whoever gets me first, you're the devil. That's the way I'm going. Wow. I, I know I didn't teach him that way. I know that I strive to live holy. You know, I, I made sure they were in church. But but still, they have their own journey and their own walk. But the God we serve, this is what I want to say to those who feel like they have failed. No, 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 no. The God we serve loves your children more than you could ever love them. And he's faithful. And so it's, it's never too late to get back in line. Yes. You know, even now, speak life. That, that was a lesson I learned. You know, my, my son was about 16. And instead of speaking what I saw, you know, when they're going through their rebellion stages, we have to speak the word of life and the, the word of God over them, no matter what we see. Mm -hmm. We have to say what God says. And, you know, and I share in the book where I looked at my son, I said, you a mighty man of God. And he looked at me and said, you don't even believe that yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. Oh. I didn't believe it yet, but I learned the principle of my mouth. Mm -hmm. You speak life and death. Life or death. There's no in between. You're either speaking life or you're speaking death. And so I made that commitment that I was going to start speaking life over them. And I continue to do it until I saw it. So no matter where you are, if you were a believer and you didn't do it right, or you now you're a believer and you realize you didn't raise them in that way at all. Oh, the God we serve will still capture their hearts. But you have to understand the authority that you have as a parent to speak life. The Bible says that the seed of the righteous shall be delivered. You got to take that word and you got to begin to speak it and, and keep praying over it. The Bible says that this is the confidence that we have, that when we pray according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then we know we have the petition that we've asked for. Wow. You can start right now, first of all, with your commitment to the Lord, that you're going to make sure he's first in your life. And then when you do that, God will begin to move 
on your family and on your children. So it's not too late, no matter if you have children that's sitting up in prison right now, the God we serve is able to meet them right where they are and bring them to Jesus. So, so look up and be encouraged yes. and let's just begin to speak this powerful word of God because the word of God is alive mm -hmm. and, it, and it moves and it changes things. And, and as we get in line as parents, God is going to honor our prayers. Cece Winans, such a joy to have you on this morning. The book is called Believe for It, Passing on Faith to the Next Generation. You can find it wherever you buy your books. Cece, I grew up with your music. It's such a privilege to have you on with us today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for your ministry. Hey, this is Carl with Carl and Crew, and I'm so grateful that you listened to this showcast. Thank you mostly for being part of the Boom Crew. As we help you take your next step with Jesus, you're a huge encouragement to us. We'll be here again live every weekday morning from 5 to 9 a.m. Godspeed.